And uh, let's talk about something a little bit more hopeful out of Easter. Uh, the end of all things, the destruction of the world <laughs> through fire and judgment. Uh, so we do begin a new series today. That's its title. And it's sort of a play on, on a New Testament word. So in English, the word end, E-N-D, usually has a sense of termination. And the Greek word that's translated end in the New Testament has that meaning as well. It's telos, but it has a little bit different of a nuance. So telos doesn't just mean the end as in the termination of, some, the, the, the termination of something. It has to do with the end goal. Like, what's the point that we're reaching for? And so the end or the telos of engagement is marriage. It's not a breakup. It turns into something new. The end of the telos of labor is birth, baby. And so when we're talking about the end of all things, what we're really saying is, what is the telos of everything? What is all of human history reaching for? The study of last things or the study of end times, the theological word for that is eschatology. And if you've been a Christian a long time, been going to church a long time, when people talk eschatology or end times, usually you'll get stuff like this. And just a fair warning, this is not where we're going with this series. It's the exact opposite. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm showing you. If you're OG Christian, you know exactly what I'm showing you. So I'm talking about the end times, you start getting charts of how it's all going to map out at the end. It's like, this is when this happened, this is when this happens. It's not what we're doing. Um, one, uh, there's a time and a place to do that, although I think there's, there's a danger in it too. Um, but more importantly, when we talk about the last things, the end times, the majority of times Scripture talks about those things, they do it in a genre called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a specific genre. We'll get more into that. But apocalyptic literature is meant to give you encouragement and hope, not its intention is not to have you get out, you know, your graphing paper and start mapping everything out. Part of that has to do with how we approach apocalyptic literature. So in America, we live a pretty good life. And so when we read stuff about the end times, it can scare us. So be honest, raise your hand if ever, especially if you were a little kid growing up in church, the book of Revelation and end time stuff was scary. Scary, yeah. I'm a big, and if it wasn't scary, someone at church wanted to make it scary for you. <laughs> it's like you're diso, you know, being a little brat in Sunday school. Hey, you want to open up and have me read to you the four bowls of wrath and the great judgment of the Lamb? You want to talk about that? It was like scary. And we made movies in the 80s in church culture where it's like, you know, if you didn't choose God, something's going to happen. And then the movie's end, you know, there's like someone, there's a guillotine that's going to chop off their head. And it's like, you better fear God, son. This is, this is what's going to happen. And so there was like a sense of fear. And it's weird because we live a good life and we fear apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, that type of stuff. For the first Christians, real life was scary. And the apocalyptic literature was encouraging and hopeful. And so what we want to do is try and discover apocalyptic literature and read it how it was... Sorry, my ear grew since first service. Um, discover how it was read by the first Christians, and it was meant to give hope. I'll give you a very recent and tragic example of how apocalyptic literature works. Last week, Easter, Sri Lanka bombings, 300 dead, many more injured. And you looked at 
the stories, you read the stories, people lost children, people lost parents, people lost loved ones. I, I watched a video of a woman who lost her husband and her two children. In the video, she's weeping, and she's just crying, saying, I lost my husband, I lost my children, I have nothing, I have no one, I have no hope. It is to her that apocalyptic literature writes. In apocalyptic literature, once that person to know that even though it seems like Christ is not in control, even if it seems like the world is breaking down and going straight to hell, Christ is in control. He is on the throne. And apocalyptic literature wants to encourage that person just enough so they can utter the words, come Lord Jesus, come. That's what Revelation is trying to do and the rest of apocalyptic literature in the Bible is trying to do. It functions sort of like this. You guys remember these? pretty annoying. Um, they're called stereograms, right? Uh, and back there, they're, they're still kind of around, but they were really popular in the 90s. Um, I remember as a, as, a, as a kid, everyone having one of these, and you go over to someone's house. Who had one up in your house? Who's still, anyone still have one? Anybody? It's okay. No, nope, I'm sure. Um, and you'd stare at them, and they're supposed to have a hidden image. And there's some of you who, who, you know, play along like it's real. You think you see stuff. It's just, there's nothing there. Um, no, there is something there, but I've never seen it. To this day, I've never, ever seen any of the. I've tried. You know, you get someone to be like, no, you just close one eye and, you know, move to the side. And I've never seen any of it. Not once. But when you see it, you see it. And you, you kind of, you see it right away. And then you go back and you can see it. Revelation... The apocalypse literally means the unveiling. It's something that is true that you just can't see, and then your eyes are open to see that which you could not see. And what you now see is more true of reality than the reality that you're currently experiencing. So it's he who has eyes, let them see. It's meant to encourage and strengthen, specifically those who are suffering. What I want to do today is introduce everyone to apocalyptic literature. Because again, when the Bible talks about the end times, 90% of the time it's doing it with something called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is a genre. It's a genre. It has rules that govern the way the genre works. And so today, super practical, I want to do two things. Show you one of the devices that apocalyptic literature uses, and then give you, how can I make it sound real interesting, the ultimate key to unlocking all the imagery of apocalyptic literature. That sounds good. We'll do that the second half. The first half, we'll do one of the devices it uses. But first, an introduction. Apocalyptic literature is a genre, and the problem with apocalyptic literature is no one does that genre anymore. So none of us know how that genre works. It's not a modern genre. It's, it's been dead pretty much. It primarily existed between what we call the intertestamental period and the first century. So roughly, give or take, from the destruction of Babylon and destruction of uh, Jerusalem by Babylon in 586 BC to the time of Jesus, roughly, and it's a type of literature that has certain rules. We rarely reflect on the rules of genre, but let me give you an example of what I mean. If you are watching a romance movie, some of you love them, some of you hate them, a romance movie. At the end of the movie, there's two lovers. And they're sitting, uh, they're laying down, looking up at the night sky. I, I was blinded. I shouldn't have done that. So, <laughs> looking up at the night sky. 
and a shooting star goes across the sky, and then the credits roll up. In a romance movie, that means what? It means they're meant to be together, they're destined, it's like, it's a unique, one-of-a-kind type of love, the credits roll, okay, it's so beautiful. Now, if that was in sci-fi, sci-fi movie, not at the end of the movie, but let's say it's at the beginning of the science fiction movie, which is a far superior genre, at the beginning of the science fiction movie, you see two people, a couple, and they love each other, and they're looking up at the night sky, and a shooting star goes across. What does that mean? You better get ready, because them aliens are coming quick, man. <laughs> them aliens are coming, they're going to take you out. You better get Will Smith on the line. He's going to have to battle them dudes. It's, it's no joke. That's sci-fi. Or what about a Western? How does a Western end? The hero has to go off into the sunset, with or without the girl. It's a trick question. Many of you will say with the girl. No, it's always without the girl because the hero, he's too hard. He might have softened his heart for that kiss in the middle of the movie, but he's too hard. He's dangerous. There's people that want him dead and everyone who he's ever loved dies because I love you so much. I have to ride off into the sunset by myself. That's the way the way it's a genre. It has rules that govern it. Let's do romantic comedy. I apologize. <laughs> romantic comedy okay so how's this work there's a awkward guy he's awkward and he's goofy and he's you know they, they, they he, he's not the best looking dude either but you want to like him he's a really likable person and there's this super pretty girl and the awkward kind of goofy dorky dude has no chance of getting the pretty girl in reality but in the romantic comedy it's possible and so he you know he gets enough courage to ask the girl out and as he's going to ask her out what happens? Something bad happens to him. He slips on a banana pill. And then to make it worse, because it's not just romance, romantic comedy, a little puppy comes over, a little cute puppy, and he lifts up his leg and pees on the guy while he's on the ground in front of the girl of his dream. And he's so ashamed and embarrassed, he's crushed, and it's like, I'll never get the girl, blah, blah, blah. But then it's a romantic comedy, so you know what's going to happen. Somehow, through a strange set of events, they hook up. And they love each other, they fall in love, and it's a happy ending. But the romantic comedy doesn't just end with them falling in love. Romantic comedy does what at the end? It flashes forward three years. And guess what? They're married, and they have a baby now. And then it's so awesome because as the awkward guy is feeding the boy, guess who's there too? The puppy, but now he's a big dog and his friend, and, you know, maybe to do one last joke, the dog does the same thing, and he pees on the guy's foot, and the credits roll up. It's like, that's romantic comedy. Now, what would happen if it's like, flash forward three years, they're having a picnic at the park, and they're in love, and they have a baby, and guess who's there too? Skippy the dog, and the awkward dude goes, Skippy, and Skippy runs across the street, and the dog just gets hit by a car, and he, do he doesn't even die, though. He's just injured, and he's on the ground, like, <laughs> crying, and the, and the dude's like, I got to go to the truck and get my gun to put this dog out of his misery. Close your eyes, son. Don't look. Don't look. Be like, dude, this is whack. This is wrong. Why? Because you expect the rules of the genre to be obeyed, and you know, even if you look at, think about it. Even if you've never consciously thought about the rules of the genre, you are acting as if they are playing out. And you know it so much that the second they don't 
the second the, the laws are not enforced, you go, what's, what's wrong with this? doesn't make sense. Apocalyptic literature uses images, and it uses rules. And so in apocalyptic literature, you get things like, and then out of the sea came a, a beast with five heads. One was a bear, one was a lion, and da 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 and he was given power by a dragon. And what happens is, is we don't know how that genre works, and in the modern world, we start applying modern methods of interpretation to that text. So some of you might have heard something like this, where in the book of Revelation, it talks about the locust coming. And so modern people go, well, what's, what are the locusts? What are the locusts? What, have you heard what the locusts are before? They're helicopters. And because the Bible's prophesying about the helicopters, it says the locusts are coming from the east, so those are like Russian helicopters. And, and sometimes if, if, if People get really good at this, and it's not even, they're not even trying to manipulate, but you can look at world events and start connecting the dots so well that it's like, oh my gosh, the world is going to end in 1988 by this empire rising from the east, and they're going to take us out. But if you've been in the game long enough, you know that it comes and goes, comes and goes, and comes and goes. And it's not to say that there's not an ultimate end at which it's pointing to. It is to say we have to be really careful when we interpret apocalyptic literature. It's a genre that has rules. I want to show you one of the devices apocalyptic literature uses, and then I'll give you the secret to unlocking apocalyptic literature. It's not really a secret. I'm just trying to make it sound super interesting. Um, so 666. Everyone wants to know what that is, right? It's like, well, what's... This is... Apocalyptic literature, we use numbers, and sometimes those numbers don't have... They're just... Yeah, there's seven churches, that's it. Number seven, it means seven churches. Sometimes those numbers are functioning symbolically. And so what people try to do is they use this ancient method of interpretation that was very common in first century Judaism called gematria. And what that does is it takes the Hebrew and Greek alphabet and assigns them a numeric value, which was quite common. So essentially, your alphabet could also be used as a numeric system. So an A represents a one, a B represents a two, a C, a three. Let's take uh, the, the word dad, for example. D, D is the fourth letter, letter of the English alphabet, so that's a four. An A is first, that's a one, and another D is four. So m the word dad has a numeric value, four plus four plus one. So dad can also be represented by a nine. So what people try to do is they try to use that to try and figure out what's going on with 666. This is the Hebrew alphabet. You have to read right to left. Hebrew reads right to left. It's really confusing. But you see it's Aleph is a 1, Beit is a 2, Gimel is a 3. But then you get to the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's a Wa. So if it's, it's a Wa, that's roughly equivalent to our W. So 666, using this sort of method, is a Wa, Wa, Wa. And that you see where this is going? What's wah, wah, wah? WWW, World Wide Web. Which for all purposes, man, the internet may be the mark of the beast, man. This comes crazy stuff. But the, the, what you have to realize is you can use this to almost point to anything and everything. And if you're living at the right place at the right time, all the pieces will match up that you can convince yourself this is certainly the mark of the beast. I mean, think about this. If you were alive in, in World War II, how would you not think Hitler is the Antichrist? 
a one world leader uniting the, the, the remnants of, of the, the European world? Who's he kill? I mean, he's killing lots of people, but significantly and symbolically, who's he killing? Jewish people. You get news that he's putting barcodes, numbers on the wrist of Jewish people. This is it. This is the end. Get ready. But the end was not yet. Wah, wah, wah. Look at the W again. What about this? <laughs> you laugh because you do not know. <laughs> They're making it obvious. It's called monster. It's a beast. You're like, yeah, this guy's used to stretching things. Just last week at Easter, he, he said the Karate Kid is the greatest cinematic <laughs> presentation of the gospel. What's these dudes' slogan? You guys know what monster slogan is? Unleash the beast. It's the mark of the beast. Now, I'm certain that the biblical authors did not think an energy drink 2,000 years in the future was going to be. Um, but I also am totally open to pop culture, Hollywood entertainment industry, people with tons of resources using and manipulating tools to, to, to mock certain things. So there's stuff that will appear in movies that's like, you're like, that looks like something. Probably, but it doesn't mean that's what the Bible's pointing to. You can also do it with world leaders. Um, for, for those of you who are true Reaganites, I'm walking on sacred ground right now. Um, but people do this with world leaders because you could find ways to make their name be 666. So Ronald Wilson Reagan, you see the 666 there? Ronald has six letters, Wilson has six letters, and Reagan has six letters. And so if you were... If you were into studying the end times when Reagan was president, people were making the case that he was the Antichrist. And they would say, look, what is the Antichrist supposed to do? He's supposed to unite all these people under his banner. What did Reagan do? There's Reagan Democrats. Everyone was loving Reagan. He's got Democrats and Republicans sitting at the table. Everyone, it's like Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. So we're fair. Could also do a Barack Hussein Obama. Now you're going, I don't know. That's one, two, three, four, five, six. That's 19 letters, and it doesn't break out to 666. I mean, it's 18 letters, but his, each, uh, each one doesn't have 666. So what do people do here? Well, there's 18 letters divided by three. It's three sets of six, 666. So people go, Brock was the Antichrist. But you've got to understand, like, everyone's deceived. Everyone's wrong. I'm going to show you something about a guy named Sam Whitaker. <laughs> We have some Whitakers in the audience, too, over here, and I'm going to break it down for you, man. It's bad news. So, okay, he needs to have 18 letters in his name. What do we got? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 letters. He's safe. 19, he's... N but this isn't how you spell your name, truly, because Whitaker is an old Anglo-Saxon root, origins. And it literally was given as a surname to mean like wheat acre, the land where there was wheat on it. And its OG original spelling is that. Look it up, Google it, add up those letters, how many you got? 18 divided by 3666. Six, six. Okay, so you see, you see what I'm doing though. And some of this is playful, but what if there was like 
15 factors all coming together that made it seem like someone was the Antichrist. And by the way, this happens. If you've been in church a long time, someone made a case for you why this date is going to be the end, why this world leader is the Antichrist, and there's so many factors, very believable. So what I want to do is show you a quick example of a healthy way the biblical authors use this thing called gematria, where numbers have a symbolic value. And this is incredibly important here, because what happens is people learn this, and then they look for numbers to add up to stuff non nonstop, try to find symbolic meaning. When the biblical authors want you to see something as symbolic, they let you know. So like in the case of 666, they say, calculate the numbers of the man, and they add up to 666. They, they like wink at you. They let you know this is what you should do. So here's an example of how the Bible uses this in a clear-cut way that's healthy. doesn't get crazy. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to convince them that Jesus is the son of David. Why does he want to convince them that he's the son of David? Because David was promised a throne, and a throne that would be everlasting, a kingdom without end. Now, has David had a son who has set up a kingdom on earth with no end yet? No. All of the sons have failed, and at this point, the kingdom is dissolved. So he begins Matthew, his gospel, with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he busts out with a long genealogy. And as we've joked before, even you really good Christians who believe all the Bible is the word of God. You get into these genealogies, and you're like, oh, this is the word of God, I treasure it. And like eight names into it, you're like, Mephibosheth, 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 and then you skip to where it picks up. But you're skipping something important here. So, God's word. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Perez by Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Okay. So, yeah, that's not bad. From Abraham to David, there's a certain number of generations listed. And I've took the time, I've underlined them and put them in bold for you. From Abraham to David, there's 14 generations. 14 sons, 14 generations from Abraham to David. The genealogy goes on with the second set. And this one is going to go from David to the deportation in Babylon. And this one says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the time of the deportation in Babylon. I skipped ahead for you, counted them up, underlined, put them in bold. 14 generations. So first set, 14 generations. Second set, 14 generations. The third set, and this is going to go from the time of the deportation in Babylon to the birth of Christ. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittiel, and Shittiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of, and it goes on. You can get the point. How many generations do you think there's going to be in the third set? 14. OK? 
Okay, 14. So from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the time of the deportation in Babylon, 14 generations. From the time of the deportation in Babylon to the birth of Christ, 14 generations. You got 14, 14, 14. Now, you could be asking, is this one of those things where you're just seeing like a pattern and making something big of it? It's like, okay, so there's three sets of 14. Not a big deal. And this is where the biblical authors will let you know when you should be digging deeper. It's like they wink at you. They go, because you go 14, 14, 14. Is this something I should care about? Then here's the big wink, wink. So, Matthew goes on, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Now, here's the piece of information that you would need to know. David is very important to Matthew's gospel. It's important that you know Jesus is the son of David because the son of David is supposed to have a kingdom without end. David has a number, a number given by Gematria. This is the English letters that correspond to the Hebrew letters, it's a DWD. In Hebrew, this would have been a Dalit Wa Dalit. You wouldn't write the vowels in ancient Hebrew. So you would just have three letters to say Dawid. Dalit Wa Dalit. Dalit is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Wa, we already discovered, is the six, and then you have another Dalit is four. So what do you have? You have four plus six plus four, it's 14. And Jews at this period know David's number. It's a very important figure. 14. So how does Matthew begin his gospel? 14, 14, 14. So these are the generations. 14, 14, 14. What is it doing? It's saying, son of David, son of David, son of David. Why? Because there has yet to be a son of David who's fulfilling all of the prophecies and all of the promises of God. But this Jesus is the Christ. Christ isn't the last name. He is, he's saying this is the Mashiach. He's the true son of Abraham. He's the true son of David. By the way, there's something confusing because if you go to the Gospel of Luke, he traces genealogies, his, Jesus' genealogy all the, way, all the way back to Adam because Luke isn't trying to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Luke wants to show you that Jesus is the true son of God. So these, these different things come out. So 666. What does it mean? No one knows with absolute certainty what 66 is pointing to. And if someone says, I know absolutely what it's pointing to, just be a little hesitant. Now, I don't know what it's pointing to, but I think I got a good idea. <laughs> I'll give you my opinion, but in doing so, you have to know that what I think 666 means actually makes it more mysterious and shows you that I don't ultimately know what it means. So let me show you what I mean. <laughs> In the first century, the Christians are being persecuted by a very bad guy. His name is Nero. And Nero is the emperor of the Roman Empire. Nero persecutes Christians. Nero dips Christians in wax and lights them as on fire for human candles for his parties. So these big festive parties late at night, and the lighting is all being provided by Christians burning as human candles. There's many other evil things that Nero did, but I won't mention them because the age is in the room. 
gross, sick stuff to men, women, children. He's a very, very evil dude. Caesar Nero's number is 666. So in one sense, what do I think 666 is pointing to? Nero, an evil tyrant who is trying to rule the world and is persecuting God's people. But now here's the interesting thing. Because there are some people, and people smarter than me, that would say, because 666 is pointing to Nero, it can't reference anything else. It all, 666 is all bound up in the first century. I don't, I don't think that's how the, the literature is working. So in one sense, 666 is pointing to Nero Caesar. He's the Antichrist figure. But the first Christians saw Nero die, and then new emperors arise. And when a new emperor would step on the scene, if he was an evil bad guy just like Nero, they would say, oh, that's Nero back from the dead. So when Domitian, another evil emperor who persecutes Christians, comes back and is, or comes and is persecuting Christians, they go, oh, that's just Nero back from the dead. Now, did the first Christians think Nero was actually back from the dead? No. Bad guys don't come back to life. Only the good guy does. What do they mean? They, they're meaning that Domitian is functioning in a way that parallels Nero. Nero is an antichrist. Domitian is an antichrist. And by the way, this is absolutely exactly how all of apocalyptic literature works. So if you're, if you, if, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, there's beast and monsters. And there's not just one. There's consecutive beast and monsters. And one beast represents the Babylonian evil empire, and the other one represents the Assyrian evil empire and then the Persian evil empire, and then ultimately Rome is the ultimate evil empire. But how is the literature working? There are beasts and monsters and antichrist, and they are typically kingdoms and the evil kings or emperors that run the show. And there's multiple ones. For the first Christians, there is Nero, bad guy, 666, he is the antichrist. But then when he dies and another one comes, like Domitian, they go, oh, that's the antichrist. And then if we were, if it was in the early 40s right now, and there's a guy named Hitler trying to take over the world, I go, that's an antichrist. He is an antichrist. He is a monster from the sea persecuting God's people. And also, by the way, there might be at the end a Nero of Nero's, if you will, an ultimate antichrist figure. So if if you are really into comic books, you're going to understand this better than anybody. But... So in the original Batman, there's an original Joker. But those, those comic book series ends, and then Batman gets another series, and Batman gets another series. And it goes on forever and ever. And the Joker is similar in all the comics. He's the same character, but he's not exactly the same. And in fact, as more time goes on, the Joker has gotten what? Worse and worse and worse. But he's still the Joker, because the Joker functions as a character. He's an archetype that gets told in the stories again and again. The Antichrist figure functions archetypically in that way. And so I think originally it was pointing to Caesar Nero, but that's not to say it can't point to others down the road. So even if there is an Antichrist figure like Hitler on the scene, that doesn't mean the end is tomorrow. The end still may not be yet. That's why you have to be so careful with this stuff. So, so careful. Okay, so that's, that's a device that apocalyptic literature uses. And now I want to give you the secret to understanding apocalyptic literature. It's, 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 
if you want to understand apocalyptic literature, you have to use the Old Testament as a dictionary. That's the secret. I told you it was not that cool. It's like, if you want to, you want to know when it talks about the seven bulls and the monsters coming out of the sea who are going to do X, Y, Z, what, what, what is, how do you understand that? You use the Old Testament as a dictionary, but as a visual dictionary. And this is what I mean. Let's say you want to know what light means, L-I-G-H-T, light. We go to dictionary.com or go to Webster's Dictionary, look up, and you see light, and you read what it says. For, the, for apocalyptic literature, you do that, but you don't go to dictionary.com. You look at how light functioned in the Old Testament. So what are the first things you read about light in the Old Testament? Where does it first appear? God in creation speaking forth light. And light is associated with the word of God and the goodness of God. And so if apocalyptic literature was using the word light, you don't look up dictionary.com. You look up how does light function in the Old Testament. I'll give you an, easier, an easy example, and then we're going to do a difficult one. If you're reading apocalyptic literature and it mentions a snake, you, don't go, you, know, you go to dictionary.com and it'll say what? A reptile that, you know, of this family that you know, people don't like and blah, blah, blah. But that's not what snake means in apocalyptic literature. What does snake mean? The serpent. And the serpent doesn't mean the serpent. The serpent means the Satan, the supernatural evil force. And so snake doesn't mean snake. It means something more. And the way you get that definition is by going back to the Old Testament. This is incredibly important because there's a, there's a, there's a current in modern Christian evangelicalism that kind of wants to, to push the Old Testament aside and just focus on the happy stuff. And by the way, they pretend as if the New Testament is all just happy stuff, which it's not. And so if you really want to know the New Testament, you really want to understand apocalypse literature, you've got to read the Old Testament always, again and again and again. Here's a tougher example. Water, or sea, S-E-A. The book of Revelation describes the new creation heaven, the ultimate destination for believers, like this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So in heaven, in the new creation, there's no more sea, no more ocean. Now some of you love the ocean. You love the sea. Sorry. New creation, no ocean, no water skiing, no fishing. It's all done away with, because God's kingdom, there's no sea. Does the sea mean the sea in apocalyptic literature? The answer is no, but what does it mean? How does the Old Testament use the image of sea? Where do we first see waters? Very beginning, right? Genesis. And what's there? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, the face of the deep. And how is that scene depicted? There's a Hebrew word used, tohu wawohu. And it's depicted as darkness, and tohu wawohu is translated... Uh, formless void. So the Spirit of God is hovering in the darkness of a dark, formless void, and then God does what? Speak. Where next do you see waters used in a in like significant, profound way? It's only a few pages away. The flood. And what happens in the flood? God looks at the world, and there's nothing but sin. And so he says, I'm going to save one family and destroy the rest. And how does he destroy his creation? It's not just rain. It talks about water coming up from like both directions. 
It's the waters are like uncreation. God has a creation, and creation is becoming undone. It's going back to tohu wawohu, but because God is merciful, he saves people and starts over. And by the way, what happens as soon as the story starts over? You have people in a garden, and there's nakedness and sin immediately after. So water is the uncreation waters that destroy the world. Then what else do you learn about the seas in the Old Testament? Well, they have sea monsters in them called tananim. Oftentimes, your English translations will say um, whales or big fish. Tananim in Hebrew is sea monsters. And it actually gives the name of it in both Isaiah and the Psalms. There's a sea monster called Leviathan. And what's the Leviathan depicted as? A big, giant, like, water snake dragon thing. And it says, only God can destroy that. So the seas and the ocean in biblical literature function symbolically. Uh, they, they, they function literally as well, but there's this idea that they represent the uncreation. So, this is very important in the Gospels, what must Jesus do to them? He must tame them. He walks on the waters and what? He speaks. And the winds and the waves obey. Now, where do the monsters always come from in apocalyptic literature? Not always, but most of the time. They come from the sea. They come from the ocean. And what do the monsters represent? The empires, whether it's Babylon, Assyria, Persia, the beast come out of the waters, the uncreation. This is how apocalyptic literature is working. So when it says there's going to be no more sea, it's not talking about the ocean. Okay. I'm going to do one other quick example. Quick one. Got to go fast on this. Um, but it'll show you just how, how many images can appear in a couple verses, and they're all images from the Old Testament. And even if you don't know all the images in the Old Testament, you'll come to like a good conclusion on what the text is trying to say, but you're not going to experience it in full color. So this is Paul in 1 Thessalonians, and he's writing to encourage Christians in the first century who have had their fellow Christians die before the return of Christ. So they were wrestling with this in the first century. We don't because we have 2,000 years of Christian death. But in the first century, some people had a hope that Christ is going to return very, very soon. And then they had loved ones die who were Christians. So the question is, what happens to those of us who are still alive? What happens to those of us who have already died at the coming of Christ? And Paul writes this to them. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them, with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now Paul's going to describe the coming of Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When you're reading your Bibles and there's images that are used, or even descriptions of events, 
Picture them in your mind. Because remember, the first Christians, they all didn't have Bibles in their pockets. They didn't have their translations on their phone. They are visualizing the text. So, I've underlined some things, some images. The second coming of Christ, Christ will descend from heaven. Picture Jesus descending from heaven. And then as he descends, there's going to be sound of trumpets. Now that's a sound, but still picture, image it, image it in your mind. Jesus coming down, the trumpets blasting, and he is going to be in the clouds, and God's people will meet him in the clouds. Now it's technical, we don't have time to get into it, but the word for meet here is a, a very precise term that means like an official meeting. This word's not common, so it stands out. Christ is descending the trumpets. He's in the clouds, and we will meet him. If you've been raised Jewish since you were born, and you're saturated in the Old Testament, there's words and images here that are used that would trigger your mind to go back to other places. So keep in mind, you have the coming of the Lord, you have trumpets, you have clouds, you have an official meeting. This is Exodus 19, where God makes a covenant with his people Israel. And this is how this covenant-making process is described. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So I've underlined the key phrases. What do you have? You have the Lord descending with a cloud. The trumpets are blasting and the people are brought out to meet God. So what is Paul doing in 1 Thessalonians? He's making the return of Christ parallel the coming of Yahweh himself establishing his covenant with his people. And you, when, you, when you're saturated in the images, you, you remember these things and you see them running up against each other. But also, this is very important, clouds don't just mean clouds. In the Bible, it talks a lot about the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Now, if you don't understand how apocalyptic literature is working, you're going, oh, that's just because Jesus is going to come down from the sky, and he's, there's going to be clouds. It's like, well, what happens if it's a bright, sunny day, and there's no clouds? Well, then you know Jesus can't come back on that day because he's got to come back when there's clouds out. That's not, you see what I'm saying? That's not how the literature is supposed to be read. So what are clouds in the Bible? Clouds are very important, very important. In Daniel chapter 7, it, it's talking about someone who is going to come who can defeat the monsters, who can slay the beast. And it describes someone. Daniel has a vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And this is what's given to the one who comes in the clouds. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that sounds a lot like David's son, right? The kingdom without end. Because David's son, his true son, 
is going to be the one who comes in the clouds. And the one who comes in the clouds is not just someone who comes back on a cloudy day. The one who comes in the clouds is the person who fulfills Daniel 7's prophecy. The one king whom all people will bow to, whom all glory will be given. Peoples, nations, languages, everyone's going to serve him. His dominion will know no end. So when you're coming in the clouds, it means you're the one who's going to be king of kings, the true son of David. And what are you going to do when you come in the clouds? You're going to set up your kingdom. And what must you do to set up your kingdom? You've got to take out the monsters, the beast, the evil empires, the Neros, the Domitians, and whatever future incarnation of the Nero of Neros, whoever that is. And so... Back to 1 Thessalonians, just read it with all that in the background. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, this is the point of the literature, encourage one another. Because when you're suffering and you're persecuted and your loved ones are dead, how do you encourage each other? With apocalyptic literature. It's meant to give hope. So those are two quick tools. And now I just, as we close, I want to show you how those same realities are true for us and how we're in desperate need at discovering them yet again. The beast, the monsters that come from the sea, the evil tyrants, that bring destruction upon the world. If you're a Christian in the first century and you need encouragement and someone is going to write you something to encourage you, you can't just write, hey friend, remember, Nero is a false king. He's a bad guy and when Christ returns, he's going to destroy him. Why? Because if you love that person, you wouldn't write that to them. Because if they're caught with that, they're going to face torture and death. So you don't write to them and reveal the details. What do you do? You say, the beast from the ocean who does this, this, and this. And the reader knows who you're talking about. Here's an example. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems. On its horns were blasphemous, na blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like a bear and its mouth was a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. By the way, who's the dragon? Well, why isn't he a serpent anymore? Why is he a dragon? Because this is his final form. This is what the literature does. So when we tell stories, what happens at the end of a Disney movie when you fight the bad guy? You think you defeat him, and then what happens? Their final form is revealed, and they're the bigger, stronger version of what they were before. So Ursula, um, Jafar, the best example of this is Maleficent. What does she turn into? The big, giant dragon. Why? Because the literature is building the narrative to say their final form is even stronger than you think. There's a beast who's given power and authority from whom? The dragon, who is not just a dragon. He's a serpent, but the serpent is not just a serpent. It's the Satan, the main bad guy. 
And so there's a Christian who's suffering and persecuted and their loved ones have suffered and maybe been martyred. Maybe they burned alive at Nero's stake. What do you give them to encourage them? You remind them. Although the beast comes from the sea and the monsters rage war on God's people, there is one coming in the clouds who is the son of David who holds the keys of Hades and his recompense comes with him. So when you're discouraged at the evil in the world, you turn to apocalyptic literature and you read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Do you know how encouraging it would be to remind the sea is there is a day where the sea will be no more. That's how it's working. The ushers can pass out communion. And this is how it encourages you to this day. We're not being persecuted. Okay, there's, there's, there's no evil tyrant on the throne that's killing Christians in America. But it is happening in other places in the world. But even with that said, there is enough evil and suffering in this room that we need the same type of hope that apocalyptic literature gives. I mean, okay, just this week at this church, this week alone, and it's like every week, we've buried people. We've had people get news of terminal sickness. We've had people have heart attacks. We have marriages on the brink. We've had spouses betray people, betray their loved ones. We have people who, you know you probably only got like 10 years left, but your body doesn't heal anymore. And what's broken stays broken. And every single day of your life, you have physical pain in your body. And so just in this room, there is pain, there is suffering, there is loss. What would apocalyptic literature and revelation have to tell us today? It would say, yes, there are still seas and there are sea monsters, and they still arise out of the sea. But make no mistake about it, there is one coming in the clouds, the destroyer of monsters, the slayer of serpents. He will come and you will meet him in the clouds. And on that day, there will be no more sea. Revelation goes on. And on that day, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. No more loss, no more suffering, no more backaches, no more cancer, no more dragons. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What is the end of all things? The end of all things begins with Christ making all things new. And so with that, we enter into communion. Please stand.